We engineered an efficient four-function animal using the same basic genetic form. We then increased it to ten functions, the decimus. And welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 5, The Web. Once again, our writer is Terry Nation. The director this week is Michael E. Bryant, who we gave a lot of praise to for the way back. Yes, and I think actually, look, whatever else we might say about this one, I think there are some really interesting touches here. Yeah, I think we'll be talking a lot about Michael E. Bryant this, this fortnight. The ratings for The Web, 9.6 million. So that is up again from the 8.9 we had in Time Squad. Word so, of mouth. Yeah, word of mouth. This is definitely building. We'll start off with our personal views. I'm going to say straight away, I actually really, really like this one. I, except when I uh, watched this one back for the podcast, I did notice it dragged a bit and it has got flaws and I'm sure we'll talk about them. A bit. I really, really enjoy this one. It's not a top 10, but it is a very much a sentimental favourite. Uh, you're looking at me as though you might not fully agree. I was entertained watching this. I don't think it's a bad episode, per se. My biggest problem with it was I really just... There isn't enough plot to fill 50 minutes. We mentioned last week that Terry Nation had given everybody something to do. There's an A and a B plot. There really is only an A plot here, and... It's very noticeable there's no B-plot. No, it very much is a first act on the Liberator and a second act on the planet. There is almost no cutting between them at all. In fact, in the first half, there's nothing on the planet at all apart from that opening. Ah, uh, no, that's correct. And there's just a very quick couple of scenes on the Liberator in the second half. So mm. it is very, very linear, more linear than anything we've had so far. I, I do accept that, but I, I think there's a lot of good stuff in this and we'll explore the good and the bad as we go on. I did wonder whether we're starting to see perhaps the idea of Terry Nation writing all the episodes is starting to bite a bit. This is one he had to finish in a hurry, so we have that famous Terry Nation trope. You can either have the next episode or you can have a second draft of this one. Yeah, and I suspect that Chris Boucher had probably put a lot of work into making sure that the introduction arc or mini arc was really, really good. And maybe there's a few here that don't quite get the attention that they deserve. Yeah. But all that said, I think there's a lot of good stuff here. And some of the cheats they use on the production are really good. And we'll have mm. a chat about them. It's worth mentioning before we get into the in-depth discussion, this is the first episode that wasn't on a compilation tape. Yes, that's right. So when they released the compilation tapes back in the 80s that we, we talk about a lot, because let's face it, like a lot of Blake 7 fans, that was Blake 7 on video for a very long time. They had the compilation that covered the first four episodes. Then the next one was basically the Travis Serverland mini-arc, or the first half of that. That's right. I do remember this being on the ABC when it was shown here in Australia, but to, to be honest, I think other than the decimas and the, the sort of the head in the jar, <laughs> uh, I don't really remember that much about it. It wasn't really until the 90s that I rediscovered this. Well, I didn't see it at all until the unedited VHS tapes came out. Yeah. And so this was the first big new standalone episode I saw. Mm. So it does have a bit of a sentimental attachment for that. And also worth mentioning, this is the first non-Federation and very sci-fi fantasy-focused episode. This really doesn't deal with the Federation at all. They get a mention at the start and the end that they're out there, that they're chasing the Liberator. But 
this really has nothing to do with the Federation. No. And I think it's a very smart move on the part of Terry Nation and the production team generally because you couldn't do the same thing every week. I mean, when we get into and you know, looking ahead, we look, look, we know what's coming. When you start getting into those Travis Servline episodes, they are very good. And they, we sort of have five over the space of about nine episodes. If we'd had that for nine episodes, this would have really struggled. And so putting in stuff like the web, they're going to go and do Mission Destiny in a couple of episodes' time, I think really does help to make this series work. And it makes it a broader sci-fi show. So if you're looking for that more fantasy-focused sci-fi, it's here in the web in spades. So look, this is another one of mine to guide us through. We'll mention the opening shot because it's important. Then I think we'll concentrate on the Liberator for a bit. Mm. But this opens very effectively, I think, very evocatively. Considering it's really just a, a base in the forest, it is quite an atmospheric... You get that tracking shot at the yes. start where they're just moving through the forest and you see the base with the flashing lights. Yes, you get that sense that this is something in space. The base has been constructed. It looks like it's been transported and constructed. It looks non-terrestrial. You've got the web hanging off it. It does look alien, and we're not in a quarry. No, that's right. We're actually in a forest. And there's that strange whispering over the top that then resolves into the voice. Yes. We then pan into the base. It's weird. It's all science-y. There's the the BBC glass test tube set has been set up. (laughs) There's the weird red lighting, which is good, and it's a little bit darker than most television would be. There's the two people sitting on the chairs. And then there's a guy in a jar. Yes. Now, it's interesting. I think it's a very effective opening. But it almost does give us the money shot right at the start of the episode. In a lot of series, and even a lot of episodes of Blake 7 and certainly Doctor Who, there is often a deliberate attempt to hold the big reveal or the monster or whatever off until a bit later in the story to keep the interest. Here, there's a dude in a jar 30 seconds in. So we know this story's going to be about this dude in the jar. I was going to make the joke, look, they know it's not a very good special effect, so let's just get it out of the way early. (laughs) I suppose you, you don't really get any idea of where it's leading because then suddenly we're straight up on the Liberator. Yes, it was a good way to get our interest and I must admit if it wasn't for the fact I was sitting down taking notes by the time they do get down to the planet again I'd kind of forgotten about the Mm. jar anyway. When you're panning through the base there's also the the two Gila and Navara just sort of motionless in the chairs. Mm. I think Terry Nation's original script was they would actually have like cobwebs or signs that they're in hibernation or, or totally motionless. It's very 2001. Yes, So as you said, we cut to the Liberator, and interestingly enough, we have Blake asleep. It shows that, look, there's stuff happening, obviously, at all times. They've had to set up watches, so somebody clearly is on the flight deck at all times. Yeah, it's one of the things that I've often criticised, in a friendly way, but I criticise something like Star Trek for, particularly The Next Generation, is that everything dramatic seems to happen when the Alpha shifts on deck. (laughs) You know, it all sort of happens between 9 and 5 on a weekday when Picard or Kirk is in the chair. Whereas here, it's the middle of the night or something. Jenna's the one on watch, just keeping yes. a lookout. And Blake and the others are asleep. She wakes up Blake, they have the conversation, and it adds to that realism. And Gareth Thomas does play it very well, that sort of, hang on, I kind of want to be asleep, why are you disturbing Yeah, that's me? right. He's initially really quite grumpy. And then, of course, he comes out and he's a little bit groggy and sort of, you know, rather than false as he comes out. Yeah, and there's sort of that, okay, maybe, maybe this is actually more complicated than I thought it was. Yeah, fair enough, let's get into it. <laughs> They're not the only ones awake, though, because Kelly is wandering around the ship being all weird and mysterious. And we know she's being weird and mysterious because there's cool music and handheld camera work and 
all that sort of thing. The first thing is obviously she attacks Villa and there's those weird POV shots yes. that tell you know something's not right here. Yep, and the camera's sort of swaying from side to side and you get to see Michael Keating's reaction. It's mm. very, very well done. Mm. The look that Kelly has on her face as she knocks him out is quite sadistic <laughs> and quite good. You, you quickly know something's going on. And look, as an audience, we instantly know that the problems that Jenna's having on the flight deck are being caused by Kelly. So they are deliberate problems that he sabotage. And we then have to work through the characters for them to link A and B. There's the strange things happening on the ship. We see her in the hold. Mm. Basically, what we later find out is an explosive device. She then goes to the teleport bay and has a little moment with Avon. Yeah. Now, is it just me to use the modern parlance to be down with the kids shipping Kelly and Avon? Or was there some flirtatious... He certainly seems to interpret her interest in, in what he's doing as an advance of some sort. He sort of has the thing where he's just clearly sizing up what is this, what's going on here. <laughs> she does a, I'm interested in your work. And then, obviously, yeah, okay, well, I'm receptive to this. Well, he's been on a prison ship for a few months, so <laughs> you can understand that. He clearly is receptive to whatever signals he thinks she's sending and gives her the information she wants, which I guess helps explain his rather rough treatment of her, shall mm. we say, when things start to go wrong on the flight deck. It's also something we're going to see a lot more of in Blake 7, particularly in a couple of episodes' time, of this willingness for characters, and, and therefore the writers mm. and the directors of the characters, to use sexuality and flirtatiousness as a tool, as a weapon. Mm. And Kelly here is very clearly using her sexuality as a way to get information from Avon. That is something that marks Blake 7 at this point, I think, as a more adult sort of sci-fi than something we'll get, certainly compared to something like Doctor Oh, Who. for sure. There is, of course, the initial thing with Avon when he's there in the teleport bay. Blake calls him because he wants his help on the desk. I'm busy. <laughs> Which then leads into the line, Blake calls him again, and he says... Avon. All right. If it was all right, I wouldn't need you here. So, it, it is that sort of idea that and initially, obviously, he's disturbing Avon. Look, I don't want any part of whatever nonsense it is you're getting us into now. And very much marking out that Blake is not the captain of the ship. Yes. And Avon doesn't come when he's called. He comes when he chooses. Yes. The other thing is also, and it's a point we made last week, more than any of the rest of the crew, Avon is clearly extremely intrigued by the level of technology and the workings of the ship Yes. that we see. He wants to understand how these things work. And I think this is a follow-on from what we saw in Cygnus Alpha particularly, where he does not want to have to rely on Zen. No. He doesn't trust Zen, and he wants to know that if Zen stops working or doesn't want to work with him, he can go and actually do it himself. Yes, and, and, and on. fix whatever the problem is. Yeah. Plus, of course, he makes the point that the Federation would pay handsomely for the technology. <laughs> yeah, let's not dismiss that either as a motivation. <laughs> He's clearly got plan B in the back of his mind. Yes, so with Avon gone off to the flight deck, we then get Callie continuing on her sabotage, including basically blowing up the part of the sensor mechanism that she's just had pointed out to her. And, yes. And, and we as an audience know that they're the sensor networks because they've just been pointed out to us as well. Yes, and, and obviously burning her hand quite badly in the process. Yes. The jump cut that Brian does at that point is really, really good because it cuts not even from the finish of the explosion, it cuts from the start of the explosion and it snaps right through to... Jenna noticing the effect on the flight deck. Mm. So it really is quite tight and effective. 
That's right. And then they have the stuff, obviously, where Zen clearly is still withholding information or won't directly involve himself in what the crew is doing. No, I mean, Zen at this point wouldn't see it as sabotage. He's like, well, that's what the crew wants to do today. It's not my job to interfere. Yes. Blake does get a nice line. If the ship's blown up, lofty disinterest won't save you. (laughs) No, but (laughs) you're right. But Zen's job is to serve the crew. And so the fact that Kaylee is acting mysteriously not how the others would want isn't any of Zen's business. Well, a member of the crew wants to block the sensor unit. I guess that's what we're doing today. Okay, now there's a fault. Now the auto repair circuits will kick in. Yes. It's one of the last examples we actually see of Zen like this. We've got a couple more, but it is a trope that was done away with fairly quickly. Yeah. I mean, I guess we see the final extension of that when they discover there's a bomb. And, of course, he can't deal with the bomb because there's nothing to deal with because it hasn't gone off yet. Yes. Which, of course, then makes the point, well, he'll clear up after us, but he won't stop us making a mess in the first place. Yeah. Obviously, by this stage, it's clear that it's Callie who's done this. She comes onto the flight deck you know, with, a, with a liberator gun. Her hands are burned. There's all that sort of observation that clearly something's mysterious because she's not feeling the pain. I think it's very clever how they do that quite subtly. It's interesting, though, the script doesn't really spend any time on... Given this is Callie's first real episode as a member of the crew, yeah. it doesn't spend any time on, well, maybe she is a saboteur, maybe she's a Federation agent, maybe she wants to steal the ship for herself. I mean, Avon has the line about if you want to steal the ship, there are easier ways to do it. And, and again, to compare it to Doctor Who, it's very much like the companion introductions in Doctor Who. You sort of get the initial story where they're introduced and you find out a bit about them, and then suddenly they're really just part of the furniture. We don't really know who Callie is. We're suddenly supposed to realise that this isn't Callie. If this had been episode 10 rather than episode yeah. 5... Do you think, as an audience, we would have reacted better or at least differently to this? If, if we were sitting there going, look, we've seen Kelly now for six episodes, this is very unusual, and it would grip us in more, or would, would we just go, well, we know this isn't Kelly, something's um, I, I suspect it's another example, perhaps, of two men sitting in a room 40 years later picking this to bits. <laughs> Whether a contemporary audience really would have made much out of it, I mean, we get she's obviously acting mysteriously because it's shot in such a way yeah. that we know she's acting mysteriously. I just found it a bit interesting that the script doesn't even try to at least ask the question, well, they work out she's possessed quite quickly. Which clearly implies that even if we as an audience haven't had a few weeks of Kelly, mm. there clearly has been at least a week or so to pass for the crew. For the crew. For them to know that this is unusual behaviour, not, well, we only met you an hour ago, so how do we know this isn't normal? Yeah, that's right. You have the bit, obviously, where they work out she is possessed. Jenna slaps her, which I guess progresses from that idea in Time Squad, because Jenna was the one who really didn't want her brought mm. on board. Avon, then, he is quite rough with oh, her. Oh, yeah, he grabs her by the throat. Yes. As we said a minute ago, he's been made to look a fool because he gave her the information that she needed to sabotage the ship, plus, obviously... It wasn't a come on. (laughs) (laughs) We start to build a picture with Avon. We've seen a little bit of it before. We see it very clearly here. And we'll get more of it in a couple of weeks' time. Spoilers. But Avon takes betrayal, or at least perceived betrayal very badly, and betrayal by a woman particularly badly. Yes, and I guess, major spoiler, we will obviously see the ultimate effect of that later in the series. Yes. It is something worth pointing out because it is something worth watching his character that you see from here. We're obviously getting to the bit with the bomb where he jumps in and saves Blake and tries to explain it away as an automatic reaction. Thank you. Why? Automatic reaction. I'm as surprised as you are. I'm not surprised. 
It's not that Avon doesn't care or that Avon has no compassion. I think he also feels that if he were to display his concern for the crew, that would make him feel more vulnerable to them. Yes. So we've had some good character stuff in the introduction. We've set up the crew, we've set up the antagonism, but now we're really at the point where that opening segment, that first setup of plot, starts to intersect with what's happening on the Liberator. Yes. Because very, very cleverly, this bit of sabotage has set them going down a particular course. The bombers stop them when they've reached a particular point, so it's knocked out their power. And they are now near a mysterious planet, we assume, outside Federation space? Well, Zen says that the system is largely uncharted. Mm. Well, even if it's outside human space, they're clearly some way off the regular space lanes or whatever you want to call it. When we do get the scanners back, there's a whole lot of cotton wool. I'm sorry, I mean web-like substances <laughs> holding the Liberator back. This is interesting. There are some shots of the Liberator in the web or the scanner that actually look really, really effective. Mm. There are others that are terrible. In particular, the hole they drill later, which is just very clearly a hole in a bit of cotton wool. Yeah. Like that, that is terribly done. The Liberator moving through the web doesn't look that great because... I think they need to slow the film down and sort of get that sense of mass. Dragging against the hull. The scanner shot is very good. Mm. The still shot is very good. But yeah, that moving through the cotton wall is not. No. That's okay. Because it does start to bring us together. You know, we saw in the start of the episode this mysterious alien world covered in web. Now the ship's covered in web. The episode's called The Web. Maybe this is significant. (laughs) (laughs) There's some TJ Hooker detective work for you. (laughs) And now, because we need to speed things up a bit, we get Jenna going into an exposition trance (laughs) where she's conveniently taken over for just long enough to explain what's going on so that we can all move down to the planet. They've clearly been contacted by the mysterious outside force. The voice. Yes. Blake talks about the power of the ship and then clearly he's not willing to just give in to the voice. So they then have the whole sequence where they're testing the power of the ship and whether they can escape from the web. Villa, of course, finally gets to fire the main guns. Yes, the neutron blasters. Yes. And again, we get a a bit of depth that I think will be lacking in a lot of shows, which is that Villa actually doesn't know how to fire the guns properly. He doesn't know he needs to activate a radiation flare shield. No, and he's still unfamiliar with the controls because the bit where Blake tells him to plot them, of course, backwards through the web, Michael Keating has obviously made the decision Villa is still not particularly comfortable operating the controls on the ship. Yeah, and even when he operates the blaster, he's very tentative about doing it. Mm. And, and as I say, Zen has to tell him... Fire! Neutron flare shield has not been activated. Which one's that? Activate the neutron flare shield! Confirmed. Blasters are cleared for firing. But but again, that is a nice little bit of detail here, this idea that if you're going to fire this massively powerful weapon, you need to put up a bit of a flare shield to stop the backlash from mm. you know affecting the crew. I, I like it. And it is something that will be consistently held to for the next three seasons. Yeah. Now, of course, before they decide to teleport down, you do get the scene where Callie suddenly has her moment of realisation that that could have been one of the lost. <laughs> and Blake's reaction is as brutal and honest as ours is, which is, What you talking about, Willis? Here you get a sort of a part explanation that they're clearly a group of outcasts from the R&R society. Mm. 
who they are is never really explained in the episode. Or really all that relevant. No, indeed. Actually, they're really just some dudes who are running out of power. Yeah, that, that's right. Speaking of which, let's go down to the planet with Blake. Yes. So again, Blake, and we get that hero moment. He goes down personally. He goes down alone. Yeah, I mean, Kelly does offer to go with him initially. Yeah, and that's really good because he clearly does not want her there because he doesn't trust her. But he gives her that sort of middle manager's, no, 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 it's not that I don't trust you. It's, well, look, you know, for your own sake, you shouldn't be going down. Whereas Avon is really quite just openly hostile. Yeah, but it's something I hadn't really picked up on that well before is how clearly Blakey's basically lying to her. Yeah. And just making her feel nice when he's not taking her down. No, he even then makes the point of telling Gan to keep an eye on her. Yeah. Not not even very subtly either, really. (laughs) (laughs) Before they teleport, you do then get the moment where Avon again is just sort of testing Blake's leadership. Does the thing about what happens if something happens to you and we can't get you back. Blake just shoots him down. What if something should happen to you and we can't get you back? But then all you have to do is get everybody else out of this mess. The web does mean that Avon simply can't turn around and leave Blake. No. They are trapped and he does need Blake to fix this. Mm. So Blake arrives on the planet. We again get that really atmospheric shooting. I don't know whether it was filmed at twilight or the middle of winter or just just a bad day in England. But (laughs) it it isn't brightly lit. It isn't sunshine. It looks dark. It looks mysterious. Uh, it's something that a lot of directors can't do. You know, there, there, there is that bit of web lying around, and it's filmed very, very carefully. I really like the way they're doing this. He is attacked by an alien. Yes. We then get our first look at this alien, uh, what we would come to know is a decima. I'm full of praise for that, because there is a very clear attempt to make it look like something that is not a man in a rubber costume. Now, yes, it is a man in a rubber costume, but... They've got actors of shorter stature yes. to play them. They've tried to break up the human shape a bit more than usual. Yes. So there's no neck, there's a different skull shape. The body's sort of got, you know, a chest protruding. It, the, the aim is to make it look like it's not yes. just a human in a wetsuit. And I do remember, as I said at the start, this is one of the images I do remember from the episode is of the Decimus. I would have been eight, I think, when I first saw this. I do remember that being quite, you know, quite a confronting sight. Yeah, it is very well done. The Decima, though, says to him, help us, help us, please. Which is interesting, because you don't actually hear them talk again, even when they're on the rampage, and and you actually see them plotting what they're going to do to get into the base. Mm. No, and I suspect if this was done today, you may even get that attempt at some sort of non-verbal communication. Mm. The universal language of opening your arms. Yes, the non-threatening pose, yeah. Yeah, and I think it could have been played a bit more subtly. But that's okay, because it does set up what this is going on, particularly as the creature is then brutally killed in front of Blake by a couple of others. Yes. Well, well he sort of does nothing, but... Well, I think he's a bit shocked. But, you know... But it, it is another iteration of setting up some sort of oppressed people or oppressed group that Blake gets to attempt to liberate or, or want to liberate. Yes, and it's now there is a scenario now that Blake and his ideals can push against. Yes, the people that kill the Decima are, well, relatively humanoid with sort of 70s wigs and grey makeup. <laughs> you know, en- enough to show us that they're not human, but they are clearly humans in makeup and a wig. Yes, and the sort of silver jumpsuits. Yeah, they're space people. And space Space costumes, costumes yeah. <laughs> and they take him into the research centre. I really like the stuff here. I'm praising this a lot, and there is a lot to like in the detail here. Again, 
there's been care made that that building actually looks like something that you would pack in the back of a spaceship, then you'd bring out and you'd put it together. It's, it's a portable base of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like that. The equipment looks like the sort of thing you'll get in there. The lighting is very atmospheric. It doesn't look like a bad sci-fi set. No. And I give the director and the set designer, in fact, a lot of praise for that. We then get to explore a bit about what's going on on the planet. We learn very quickly that they're into some sort of genetic research. We get the example of the little enzyme culture thing that heals Blake's wound. Yes. Which, when I was younger, that was a really effective moment. Like, wow, Mm. that's really cool. And the little thing they put on his hand looks really cool. I must admit, as an adult, I can see that the wound on his hand is very clearly on top of his hand. <laughs> but that's, that's unfortunate. I mean, that's just an example of us watching this on DVD on a you know modern flat screen oh, TV. Sure. Versus somebody watching this in 1978 on a tube. Although there is some interesting material there, we probably are starting to get into some of the padding. Blake is amazed for a good 30 seconds yes. or so about how well his hand's been healed. That's amazing. That's really amazing. What is it? That's amazing. Yeah. 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 Look, as I say, as a kid when I first saw this, I would have been a couple of years older than you Mm. when the Vietnamese came out. So say 11, maybe 12 when I first saw this. That whole stuff, I was just transfixed. I was engrossed. I was engaged. You know, it was that, like, this is interesting. They're doing cool space science stuff. And (laughs) that gripped me. And even now, I, I like it. I think there's an attempt to create an idea of what is going on on this planet. Mm. So let's mash this all together a bit because there's a few little conversations I think we can kind of have at once because they all do overlap. We learn that the decimas are created by whatever's going on in this research station. Yes. We then learn that they have gone beyond their creation, which is simply to be a manual workforce, mm-hmm. and they're now rebelling and they're getting personalities and, you know, what is this human thing you call love and all that sort of thing's going on (laughs) with the decimus. Yes, what do they call it? An aggressive mutant strain or whatever it is. Yeah, and we get to see how that manifests itself. There's the bit where the decimus are rioting. There's the bit where they set up a distraction by rioting on the other side of the base so they can collect their dead. And we get the little sort of or Return of the Jedi-style Ewok moment of decimus showing affection and and grief. and, And obviously, as we later discover, jumping ahead a bit, Gil and Navarra themselves are artificial creations. Yes. But they view the Decim as their servitors. They have no concept of intelligence or emotions. They are very much just to serve. They're an experiment that's gone wrong mm. and, and needs to be jumped and started again. Yes, and of course they do make the point, well, we gave the Decim as life, so we clearly should have the right to take it away. Yes. We also then learn, and through what starts off again as a bit of an exposition trance, but we learn that Gila and Navarra are not actually in control either and Blakey's taken to see the head in the jar yes whose name is Samon there is that sort of narrative padding here I mean Blake is told I think three times during the episode they intend to suppress or wipe out the decimus and even the third time he's hang on you're going to do what to the decimus yeah and then he's told that Gil and Navarra are artificial constructs and it's so you're an artificial life form. <laughs> and, of course, he's told that Samon is controlling them. And it, and it is very much, that was you I was talking to, talking through them. <laughs> yeah, again, it is probably a case of two sad blokes picking this to bits 40 years on. But I was really conscious of the fact that this was really starting to drag. I think that this is the weakest part. It is a long stretch of various bits of exposition. Mm. That is unfortunate. Because what we have here is a really cool concept. So Samon explains that 
Here's now a corporate identity that there were six members of the mm. team. They left Aram, but they were not part of the r and as Kelly mm-hmm. is, so they've dropped out of society, whatever that may be. They've gone to do their goes of Mengler dodgy illegal genetic research, whatever it is. So, you know, this is their Argentine forest. <laughs> and But, you know, they couldn't preserve life at that stage, so they died out. So they did that whole thing of, well, we'll merge our consciousness into one being and we'll have it artificially supported. And Yes, and this is a surviving body. Yeah, and that's basically the dude in the jar that's just there so that the brains have something to... Live in. Live in, yeah. It's a concept very similar to one that Terry Nation used about 15 years beforehand in the Doctor Who story, The Keys of Marinus. Oh, yes. Where they go into the city of Morphoton and meet the Morpho brains. Yes. Which are, again, just brains in jars that have outgrown our bodies and now have to live in a jar and... And, and control the populace. And control the populace. Let's face it, it's something that Future Armour will do again 30 years later. <laughs> yes. So this is all really cool. Like, I really like the mm. ideas here. I actually quite like the dude in the jar. Okay, it's not the best effect, but it's a really cool idea. As a kid... It completely blew me away. It was like, wow, this is a really cool sci-fi mm. thing. I couldn't work out how they did it. Now, I, you know, you can clearly see how it's done. It's a head poking through a wall with a body sort of stuck to his chin. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I really like what's going on here. I think this is what I watch sci-fi for. They don't really explain how they control Jenna, but they do explain that they reached out to Callie's mind and were able to control our daughter, I think they call it. Which does raise the point how long they've been monitoring her. I would posit that it is simply a case of the power cells are now at a critical level. So they're mm. like, right, find me the nearest Aaron. And because Callie's floating around with Blake, she happens to be the nearest one. And, and had she not been around with Blake, had she died on Saurian Major, there'll be some food transporting Aaron guy who has to take his cargo ship to the planet. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting idea because the inference at the start is they're obviously in shutdown mode because their power's now reached a critical level. Yes. And you probably then get the idea, well, this is their last desperate chance to try and reach out and grab somebody. Yeah, because it's not a case of they've been waiting around for 50 years to do this because the decimas are implied to be a fairly recent experiment. Mm. So I think it was a case of, look, we've just got to get an hour on now and Callie was the closest one. Yeah. All of this really sets up the third act, which is the point at which we find out why Blake is there. The... MacGuffin for the episode are two flutonic power cells, which they need, and they have very cleverly set up this idea that, look, you give us the power cells, we win because we get the power, you win because with the power we'll clear a way through the web, and everybody goes on their happy way. Except the decimus. Except the decimus. Blake then obviously calls up to the ship to arrange for the power cells. The crew have discovered that there are pursuit ships in the area. We do get what unfortunately is a bit of an editing fail. When they look at the scanner screen, the ships are clearly on there for several seconds with a nice little Federation logo (laughs) on them before one of the crew suddenly goes, there they are! (laughs) It does help to ramp up the tension a bit, but it also fills an important plot point, which is that Blake can't just wait now for the base to shut down and same on to die and then put the power cells in and get away he has to do it before the pursuit ships get there so again terry nation is very good at these action plots and all the bits of it actually do come together very very neatly the the way the bomb was placed right at the start works the motivations of them work the timing works blake now has a reason to do stuff so in, in typical terry nation fashion 
all the plot strands actually do fit neatly together. Now, I was going to make the point with the pursuit ships. You do then get a moment for Jenna where Callie is, is going to, I must tell Blake. And Jenna says, well, no, if he's trying to bargain with these people, knowing that we are now on a deadline, will clearly weaken Blake's position. Unfortunately, then, the resolution, it's good dramatically, but it is very simple. The sad thing is, really, after all of this, the resolution is just that they forget to shut the door behind them when they come back into the base. Now, you see, I disagree a little bit because I don't think that they forget. Gila and Navarro very clearly look back at the door and leave it open. They see the desk in the doorway, and I think it's hubris. I think their view is, well, as soon as we press this button, they're wiped out. So I don't care whether you're inside or outside when I wipe you out. I'm going to wipe you out, and therefore I don't need to shut the door. Y- yes, it is a convenience, but I think it is one of hubris, not a mission. Yeah, look, I suppose they've had the scene a minute or two before. Once they get the cells, or they realise they're close to getting the cells, all the pretense really drops. I mean, they do make the point, understand your lives are totally meaningless to us. Yeah. Yeah, fine, look, we'll give you what you want, we'll release you, but we don't care if we have to kill you to get the cells. Yeah, and then another piece of padding, when Avon comes down with the cells, we do sort of go through the hole, we'll hide them under a bit of brush, where are they? I'm not telling you, zap, okay, they're here. And if you cut that whole segment, you'd lose nothing from the plot. No. You do need at least Blake to go through that motions, I guess because you need to see him try to find another way out. And, you know, he doesn't just want to hand it over, he wants to negotiate, but he's in the position of weakness to do that. I guess we kind of have to see that. I just think it's really weakened by the fact that hiding the cells is putting them on the ground and putting some brush over Yeah, he does come up with a point, if they'll let us destroy the irradiating equipment, you get your power so you survive, the decimus survive, and you clear the web for us so we get away. Mm. You know, everybody comes out a winner. But... Yeah. It, it is that Blake naivety again, isn't it? Avon really calls him up on it. It's quite an interesting little scene because Avon is very much, it's no contest. Oh, well, if it's between the creatures and us, there's no argument. Even your irrational conscience should be able to cope with that. But he then has the pause and he does that, that sort of resigned look where it's, all right, what do you want to do? <laughs> because he clearly knows that he's not going to work for Blake. But, of course, he does have the moment where the decimus come in and start revolting, where he looks at them and just, these are what you wanted to save. <laughs> so you mentioned the ending there. That moment there where the decimus do attack. attack, that is full on. It goes back to what we are saying at the start about some interesting choices in the direction. Again, in the fight scene, there's a lot of POV shots. There's a lot of close-up frenzied action to sort of make this look nasty and brutal. To the point of you see those last little threads of flesh being kicked off a skull. That is a... I had nice, in inverted commas, touch. I mean, it is quite gruesome. It is very, very memorable. They're both pulled down with decimus, particularly Gila, they're thrusting her staff at them. But she's then just pulled down under the sheer weight of decimus, and you just see them all. And again, these sort of frenzied close-up shots of them just pounding on it. Yeah, and you're sort of left to assume that if we'd stayed a couple of minutes longer... Simon probably would have been taken out of his tank and ripped limb from limb. Yes, or the tank tipped over onto the floor or whatever. You do get that literal interpretation of that notion that rebellions often go a little bit too far in kicking the bodies. Yes. And in this case, you literally see the decimus pause to kick the bodies. Yes, you do. And I suppose it reinforces that idea that they are artificial construct as soon as their life force is broken. They just collapse and disintegrate. Yes, you're just left with their skull being kicked across the floor. Yeah, so it's really an effective resolution i think the one thing it lacks and that really drags this down from being a really good episode is that blake actually isn't the catalyst for anything 
if with all the hindsight of 40 years, we were doing another edit of this script, mm. I think what would actually work better is rather than all that padding and conversation, if Blake had sort of had a moment of being able to do something clever, like he'd sabotaged something or he'd done something to the cell so there was a delay, and because of that delay, that's what allows the Decimus to attack and that's why Simon and his team are defeated. Yes. If Blake could have had just a little bit more of a role in it rather than, well, he's kind of just there. So yeah, look, it's a, it's a graphic ending. We get the nice little twee final scene, the Scooby-Doo ending. I am going to put a quick shout out to, we see the, the Walkman and glasses again from the way back, but Gan has them this week. Blake obviously then gives the, the line that... You can't separate living creatures. Being alive involves them together. To which Avon responds... I couldn't agree with you less. Which again is, I guess, that idea of superiority from Avon, that some of us are more equal than others. Yes, and he then sort of tops it off with... I'll tell you a fact of life, Blake. Change is inevitable. Another sort of pointed barb that there will be... As he says earlier in the episode, there will come a time when Blake won't be making the decisions. Yes, and Blake is not unaware of this and gives the very deadpan... Why else we fight, Aiden? <laughs> Cue credits. A couple of minor points that sort of don't fit in ideally to the plot but we do need to mention. One of them is Callie. As we mentioned earlier, this is her first episode post-introduction. Mm. Given all the talk about how she's a bit of a terrorist and a warrior princess, even now she is very clearly given the Ohura role. She sits in the back corner of the flight deck and listens to the radio. Again, I mean, as she did on in the last episode, she works in communications. Yeah. So Avon gets to play with computers, Blake's the leader... Jenna drives the ship, Villa plays with the weapons, Callie talks to people. And Gan is the strong man. Yeah. We've sort of talked a bit about how the characters interact and how they evolve in this episode. We now get the thing with Avon. He very clearly regards Gan as a total inferior and as really somebody who is just not worth bothering about. I mean, you see the scene where he tells Gan that he's slow. It's slow. You should appreciate that problem when they're watching the auto repair systems. And then there is a scene later on where Blake's about to teleport down and Gan clearly goes to operate the controls and Avon just pushes him out of the way. Yeah, like literally just pushes him out of the way. Yeah. There is certainly a sense of Avon particularly establishing where in the pecking order everybody is. And look, he's in his mind at least equal to Blake, but certainly he wants to make sure the other crew know that he is above them. Yes. There was, I think, an anecdote from David Jackson where... He wanted them to script in, you know, Gan at least pushing back against this and saying to Avon, look, back off or I'm going to knock your block off. But that sadly never happened. No. And we also know from our friend at the Making Blake 7 Twitter feed Mm. that at this point Paul Darrow had worked out how the teleport operated and was very keen to make sure everybody used it correctly. And I've got to give him credit, particularly as a kid when you notice this stuff and you care Mm. about this stuff, I knew the sequence to operate the teleport because yes. there, there was a clear sequence. There was. I'm not sure the final one they settle on is the one they use here because those moving switches yeah. are and, the and actual... Is, and isn't it sad that we both know that yes. it's with the moving switches? <laughs> <laughs> so he perhaps hasn't quite worked it out yet. Yeah. But yes, I know that is an anecdote, yes. So look, I have really enjoyed the web. I concede that watching it for this podcast, looking at it critically, it does have its flaws. But I think this is a wonderful, imaginative, very well-made space adventure. 
I think this is a step up from the last couple of episodes. It's not as good as The Way Back in Space Fall, but I think it's one of the stronger episodes of season one. I perhaps didn't get quite as much out of it as you did. But as I said, I was certainly entertained watching it. One little production thing, and it's something you would blink and miss. When they talk about the fact that they don't have the type of power cells that the Lost need, someone in the design has actually gone and made two slightly different looking power cells that Avon brings down with him and they place in the machine. They're not identical to the ones that they take out. No, it is actually a nice little touch that they don't just have them sitting in the cupboard. Mm. They've got to go and make them. Yeah, I, I do like that. We'll move then to our regular segments. So the first of our regular segments, as always, is guest cast. So look, we haven't really got a big standout guest character this time, but we have got three guest roles. Richard Beale, who plays Simon, or the head in the jar, has got, you know, for, for a guy who is playing a head in a jar here, he has got a stack of credits from 1956 through to 2005, he did a lot of voice work, including on Doctor Who, where he was in The Ark, The Green Death, uh, The Macra Terror. He was in The Gunfighters as Bat Masterson. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was in Compact. He was in A Horseman Riding By, one of the prestige dramas. Yes, I do remember that. He was in Tripods. Mm-hmm. And he was in five episodes of The Bill. There you go. Uh, Miles Fothergill, who plays Navara, only has four TV credits. I believe he did a lot of stage work. He did. He replaced Jeremy Irons as Judas in the original UK run of Godspell. Okay. When that moved to the West End or wherever. He was also Rocky in some of the original UK runs of the Rocky Horror Show. Oh, wow. Back when it was a stage production. Okay. His television credits include Breakaway and the Olympian Way. Probably his big genre credit is as SV7 in The Robots of Death, the Doctor Who ah, series. Ah, yes. Which, when you listen to the voice, you actually do realise. Mm. And finally, Anaya Marzen, who played Gila, she's got lots of credits. They're all very small parts. Uh, she was in the 1971 Casanova. She was in Foil's War in the 90s. And she was in five episodes of Target, which is one of her main recurring roles, but again, not as a main character. She was also in Nicholas and Alexandra, which was quite a big movie at the time. It's probably now, I think, best known for the... It's the movie that introduces the world to Tom Baker, as Rasputin. <laughs> she played one of the Tsar's daughters. Yeah, so three entries there for our guest cast. There is a fourth, which I will give a quick shout-out to, which is one of the decimas, which is Deep Roy. Yes, of course. He was only quite young when this would have been filmed, and he has several other appearances in Blake 7. Yeah, look, his main one is in Gambit. I think we'll spend most of our time looking yes. there. But... He had been the peaking homunculus Mr. Sin in the Talons of Wen Chiang on Doctor Who. And he's still working now. Probably one of his biggest recent credits, and I say this because I watched it on TV the other night, the remake of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The creepy one. Yes, <laughs> the creepy one. He is all the Oompa Loompas. Yeah, he's all of them, yes. Yes. Liberator Watch. There's actually a couple of big things we see here. The auto repair systems, which become a very important part of the Liberator's abilities, Yes, we see, and their ability to basically just repair anything very quickly. There is sort of that idea, taking it a step forward, you see how quickly that the Liberator is at least partially organic. Mm. That's something we'll revisit a bit later in the series. But yes, that is the first time we see the auto repair systems working. As we discussed, we get the first use of the neutron blasters and the radiation flare shield. That's right. Interestingly, though, although they come out of the weapons pods, it is a blue effect not the green and black one we'll see for the rest of the series. Yes. Oh, that's, uh, that, that's, <laughs> that's getting quite detailed, but yes. We've talked about Paul Darrow and the teleport sequence. One other thing we see here for the first time is the debut of the what we'll call the surface gear. 
Yes. The, the anoraks, basically, <laughs> uh, that the crew wear when they're down on the surface of the planet. Blake gets a nice green-toned one, and Avon's is a nice sort of faded blue. Yes. The joke and or observation has been made many times before that someone in the costume department clearly took this idea of, look, it's kind of like Robin Hood in space, and gone a little too literal with Blake's costume there. I actually think they're not a bad design, because the, no. that idea that you would have gear for when the crew, whoever the crew of the ship were, would go down on, on alien planets, that there would be a sort of standard outdoor clothes that they would wear. Yeah. No, I actually think it's a very nice touch. I mean, you know, we, we joke about the Robin Hood design, and they, they are Robin Hood influenced. Yeah, they, they are, I think. Yes, this idea that they don't just go down in their space gear, they have planet gear. Yes, it is quite an interesting idea, and I mean, we will see, as we start to see more of the crew wear them, that they are colour-coded. <laughs> <laughs> The other costuming thing I will say here, it's also the debut of Avon's uh, little tunic with the push buttons on the front. Yes. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what that's meant to be, but (laughs) I think it's just, it's a space tunic. (laughs) Our next segment is, look, it was the 1970s. Mm. I think we just need to talk a bit about how much in the zeitgeist the idea of genetic experiment was. Mm. This is the time when... There's that idea of, well, where can medical technology take us? What can we do? Uh, Cloning starts to be in the zeitgeist a bit more. Mm. And you start to see in science fiction particularly, but also in, you know, articles in New Scientist, for example, this speculative idea of where's this technology going to go? Plus, yes, you do also start to see it in popular fiction. I mean, this is around the time that you start to get things like The Boys from Brazil. Yes, exactly. Um, It starts to be used for sci-fi purposes. Yes, so it is very, very much a uh, trope of the 70s. Mm. And there is a discussion here in the episode, perhaps a little incongruous given Blake's human and the lost are R&R, but Blake says that these sort of experiments have been banned for centuries and the lost make the point, well, why else do you think we had to come here? So it does allow Blake to virtue signal, but it also shows that what they're doing here is very dodgy and illegal. Yes, it's it, it ethically wrong. Yeah. We have mentioned, of course, Simon a few times. Look... It's not the greatest effect. I think in 1977 or 78, that's a practical effect like that is really the only way you could have done it. Oh, of course. And now I mean, it would be totally CGI. Well, well, the only alternate way to do it would be with a puppet. Mm. And that would have been, I think, markedly worse. We do quite memorably go to a puppet at a later point in the series. <laughs> yeah, look, I had the Doctor Who story colony in space in my mind. But, but you're right, we do go that bad in Black 7. But we're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> so our next segment is... What cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? You've already highlighted the Avon, we need you on the flight deck from Blake, which gets the response, I'm busy. He does get to make a number of quite snarky comebacks here. I mean, there's a bit where Avon teleports down holding a box. Blake (laughs) says to him, did you bring the power cells? Which, of course, gives Avon the line, what do you think these are, field rations? (laughs) Yeah, we've highlighted the, it's slow. You should appreciate that problem. Yes. But I did want to mention the... uh, these are what you wanted to protect. They're fighting for their lives. Who isn't? <laughs> so we are really starting to see, and it's only episode five, we are really starting to see a lot of cool Avon lines. Mm. And look why you know, he was very much picked up in audience appreciation surveys as being a very big part of this show. Yes. And, and indeed, even by Terry Nation. Yes. Yes. Who so suddenly realised what a good character he was writing. So we move then to our Player of the Week. Richard... It's my episode, so you get to go first for the player. I, I'm actually going to go... I, it was a choice between two, and my, my honourable mention is to Blake, 
because he really is the only one of the cast with a lot to do. I'm actually going to give it, though, to Michael E. Bryant, purely and simply because I think this is not a really great script. So I think he is at least trying to do something different and innovative. Look, um, I, I totally agree. I've actually given it to Michael E. Bryant as well. Yeah, because I think with a lesser director, this would have been a very ordinary script and a very ordinary episode. Some of his choices in direction do lift this. No, look, I, I totally agree. I, as I said, I've given it to Michael E. Bryant as well. His direction here is fantastic. The way that he sets up the alien landscape, the way he does the lighting, the way he does the handheld point of view shots, yep. it, it really does elevate it. it. It adds mystery. It adds depth. It is not over the top. Uh, I think if this script had been badly directed, it would have ended up like a very bad episode of Space 1979 or The Tomorrow People. You know, <laughs> I but... see what you did there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Neither of which are necessarily terrible shows, but when they are bad, they are truly bad. Yes. And, and this raises above being terrible sci-fi. It is actually engaging and interesting sci-fi. And you're right, it is down to the work of Michael E. Bryant. He's a very good director. We know that in The Way Back, he got an honourable mention in The Way Back, and he's getting the award here. Yep. We should say once more, thank you very much for listening. The numbers of people who have been listening and engaging with us has been really humbling and really flattering. So thank you all for tuning in and I hope you're sticking with us. It has. And actually, thank you very much for the Facebook and feedback in that as well. We've had a couple of really nice emails. Yeah, really, really good feedback. And can I shout out on this occasion to two Doctor Who podcasts who have made a point of mentioning us in their recent episodes. The I'll Explain Later podcast, which if you want a couple of English guys who are very engaging but brutally honest about Doctor Who in a very entertaining way. Check them out. And our friends at the Diddly Dum podcast. If you like fans just happily chatting around a microphone about Doctor Who specifically, but also sci-fi, including Black 7 generally, check out the Diddly Dum podcast. And, uh, yep, we'll mention more of our friend podcast as we go through this. Mm. So thank you to those guys. In next fortnight, we'll be back with Cyclocate Destroy. So resume course for Kentaro. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. I do, however, love the idea that after the, you know, the, the credits have rolled and everybody's sitting back on the Liberator Lounge, Avon sort of turned to Blake and going, okay, so, dude, what was that hit in the jar? <laughs> <laughs>